0: Hello, my name is Jace Wilkie, and welcome to Plugged In Politics, where we keep you plugged into the policy, stakes, and drama on Capitol Hill. So guys, I have a pretty good show lined up for y'all this week. We're going to be covering the Supreme Court case of Gonzalez versus Google, and how it could change the internet as we know it. House leaders Kevin McCarthy and Hakeem Jeffries create a bipartisan task force to remove committee members, and Marjorie Taylor Greene suggests a national divorce. So without any further ado, guys, let's get the show rolling. So this year, the Supreme Court will be hearing arguments in the Gonzalez versus Google lawsuit. So before we get started on anything related to the decisions or anything about, uh, I guess, precedent for this case, let's go on ahead and give some background details. So back in 2015, 23 year old American student Naomi Gonzalez was killed in a wave of terrorist attacks that occurred in Paris, France. Now, these attacks led to the deaths of 129 people in total, and ISIS claimed responsibility for the specific attack that led to Gonzalez's death. Now, Gonzalez's family then launched a lawsuit against Google claiming that the tech giant should compensate for the family's loss. Uh, The bulk of their argument states that the tech companies like Google are responsible for allowing ISIS to post recruitment videos and other content that were never taken down. Uh, Just for clarification, this was on YouTube, which falls under the purview of Google. Now, this legal argument, if affirmed, would directly contradict the legal defense of Section 230, made in 1996. Now, let's talk about Section 230. This is going to be the big meat of this entire discussion, particularly related to the Supreme Court decision. Now, Section 230 is a section of Title 47 of the United States Code that was enacted as part of the Communications Decency Act in 1996, which is Title 5 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996. In many ways, it is responsible for allowing the Internet to become what it is today. So, essentially, Section 230 generally provides immunity for online computer services with respect to third-party content generated by its users. Uh, It essentially distinguishes online media platforms from standard publishers like news agencies and papers. So, let's think about how newspapers and outlets approach content and publishing. So, there's a general process of acquiring information, editing it, and then publishing it. So let's take like an example of uh, the New York Times, right? Since reporters, editors, and publishing processes all fall underneath the responsibility of the New York Times, they are directly liable for any damages that are caused by their work, seeing as they're directly you know, responsible for moderating, editing, and then distributing the content that's created on their platform. This can be examples of like libel, uh, basically false statements written in, in like printed form, There's slander, which if you did like, I guess, a video project and said something incorrect that led to damages uh, for the individual or company spoke about, that would be considered slander. And then there's misinformation. That's just generally spreading information that's false, uh, whether or not it was uh, intentionally done. For example, consider the current $1.6 billion lawsuit that Fox News is facing from Dominion Voting Systems. Now, this was for spreading false information about the 2020 election. And because Fox News distributed information that they likely knew was false, they could be found financially liable. Now, in stark contrast, let's take a look at social media sites like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Now, these are sites that basically anyone in the public can join. Uh, This could be essentially be equated to the bathroom wall. Basically, anyone can post or say anything that they want without liability falling on the platform's shoulders. Like, say I created a conspiracy theory about Jeff Bezos on Twitter, and then it created a negative financial impact to Amazon. In that case, he could sue me, but not Twitter itself, because I'm the one directly liable for the statement that I put out there, not the platform. It essentially provides protection to the companies that own the online platforms, since in this context, they're not directly responsible for what users say on the platforms. But there is a little bit of a caveat here. This largely fits in the context that anyone can say anything on these sites. Now we're gonna bring a little bit more attention to the idea of moderation. Now where things get complicated is in the modern landscape of content moderation. So in the mid-2010s, platforms like YouTube began to overhaul their terms of service agreements and monetization services after advertisers began to draw concerns about some alt-right content. Uh, this included anti-Semitic, misogynistic, and racially contentious content. To curb advertisers from leaving the platform altogether, these companies started creating stricter guidelines and algorithms to limit the amount of blacklisted content that can be available to users. Some of these actions ultimately resulted in user bans, and eventually a total deplatforming for these content creators altogether. In the context of reviewing content, and establishing systems that moderate these platforms, the legal protections of Section 230 begin to get murky. Now that they've taken steps closer to being responsible for the information that's posted on their platform, tech companies are now possibly being considered in the same company as publishers. So with all this context kind of lined out, let's look at some potential outcomes. If the court rules that Google is responsible for these damages, then that could open a variety of outcomes for not only the case, but for the internet as we know it. Now, first and most obviously, Google and other tech companies could be considered liable, not only in this case, but in all other cases deemed fit under federal anti-terrorism laws. Now, these stipulate that a plaintiff that successfully shows that a company knowingly provided substantial assistance to a terrorist act, then he or she shall recover damages threefold as well as the cost of the suit. Now, this is the kind of liability that could financially cripple even a company such as Google. Now, if these companies are faced with such legal liabilities, they could do one of two things. Either one, fully remove any and all moderation, terms of service, algorithms, etc., and just let their platforms become a hellscape, or lock down into platform any and all content that is remotely contentious. Seeing that the main goal for these kinds of corporations is to basically acquire as much advertising money as they can possibly get, my beer gut tells me that they would roll with the latter. This is because if they drop all moderation, then advertisers would be completely abandoning these sites, thus drying up any potential revenue that could be had for these platforms. And completely locking down content, it could actually attract more advertisers in the long run by limiting negative content that would normally prevent them from being there. Like, imagine if you are the, I guess, CEO or marketing manager for Nestle, right? You're already dealing with a shit ton of backlash for, you know, all the slavery and East and West Africa, right? You don't need more backlash by putting an advertisement for that product on the video of, like, I guess, possibly an alt-right Aryan-supported video. You know, that's that's only going to sour the minds of viewers even more. That's why advertisers tend to basically prioritize videos that are much more squeaky-clean, family-friendly content. That's why a lot of times the algorithm pushes those kinds of videos onto people more so than, say, political videos, more so than video essays, uh, etc., etc., So in locking down content, this could radically change the internet in whichever way the court and these companies go. If the free-form, no-moderation approach is taken, then this would eliminate the form in which content is even surfaced for users. Like I said earlier, if algorithms are eliminated, then there would be no availability of feeds of, or recommended content. Essentially, if you wanted to find videos, you would have to directly search for them. This would practically destroy any and all ability for content creators and commentators to grow their platforms or even generate income. In the case that these companies take an overhauled approach to moderation, which I suspect that they will, then content would be the most vanilla, family-friendly feed that avoids controversy, political discussion, or commentary. Because based off of past precedent and up to this point, those are the main types of videos that get demonetized or get deranked in the algorithm. So I guess it's kind of down to decisions time. Um, I'm going to be honest, guys. I do not trust the Supreme Court to fully assess the potential consequences of their decisions related to this case. Uh, The majority of them are dinosaurs, and six of them have demonstrated that previous constitutional and legal clauses hold very little sacred value. Uh, I'm referencing their ruling on the uh, Kennedy versus Bremerton uh, school district case in 2022. So buckle up, guys. We may just bear witness to the most seismic change to how information and entertainment are platformed and how online communities can even be cultivated to begin with. I don't know, guys. Hopefully I'll see you on the flip side. Shameless plug time. So with Section 230 potentially in the obituary, I need you guys to do me a favor. With the modern media landscape in jeopardy, I'm gonna need you guys now more than ever to help spread the show. If you have opposable thumbs, you're perfect for the job. Whether it be through social media, word of mouth, or in public demonstration, I'd greatly appreciate any help. The show is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. So it offers accessible options for any and all viewers. Also, make sure to support the show on Twitter at Politics Plugged, where I post announcements, share news stories, and may or may not post drunk tweets. Now, back to the show. So on Friday, CNN reported that House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries are creating a bipartisan task force to determine a process to house members from committees going forward. So McCarthy took the lead in creating this task force, and Jeffries agreed to name members to it. So this came about after Representative Nancy Mace made a deal with Speaker McCarthy to get Mace on board with ousting Representative Ilhan Omar from her Foreign Affairs Committee seat. So if you guys are not familiar with that entire drama, I kind of outlined it uh, in one of my earlier episodes. I basically talked about all the committee oustings uh, of Representative Schiff, Swalwell, and uh, Omar off of committee seats as a response to the oustings of Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar back during the 117th Congress. Those two, Representatives uh, Green and Gosar, were basically kicked off their committee seats after incendiary language and damaging rhetoric on social media, particularly following the Jan 6 incident. So in response to this, Speaker McCarthy basically uh, took it upon his shoulders as one of his main promises to basically oust uh, Democratic leaders and committee seat holders, uh, basically as revenge, tit for tat, but using the same precedent essentially started by the Dems during the 117th Congress. However, it gets a little iffy on that, because basically they cited tweets by Ilhan Omar uh, related to Israel and claiming that they were anti-Semitic. Largely because one of her tweets in question essentially talked about how Congress was essentially quote-unquote like sold out to Israel, but I kind of see why. Uh, Essentially, she just said it's all about the Benjamins, you know, referencing Benjamin Netanyahu. I didn't think it was anti-Semitic. A lot of people don't, but you know they're going to turn it whatever way they can. So it is what it is. It, it's not great, but you know we're here for the ride. So this matters in several areas because this task force would look to address and fully institutionalize a tit-for-tat partisan committee assignment, uh, and this breaks the long-standing precedent of party caucuses determining committee assignments internally. So let's look at the details of this task force and who exactly are potentially going to be members or have been listed as members for this committee. Uh, McCarthy and Jeffries both submitted members for this consideration. Both of them submitted four, and we're going to take a look at those. So McCarthy basically listed his four as follows. Uh, So we have Representative Tom Cole out of Oklahoma. He currently stands as the Rules Committee Chair. Uh, You know, that's the famous Rules committee that basically straight jacketed McCarthy throughout the entire 118th Congress, as well as creating some really concrete uh, clauses that pretty much prevent any work being done on the debt ceiling. Then there's Dave Joyce out of Ohio, who is on the ethics committee. Then Nancy Mace, as mentioned earlier, who we suspect in resisting ousting Omar basically weighed uh, a deal to get on this committee in the first place in exchange for her vote to oust her. And then finally, there's Ken Buck out of Colorado. He's also another member that resisted ousting Omar, and I suspect was likely in on the deal. And so let's move on to uh, Jeffrey's picks. So we have Jim McGovern out of Massachusetts. Now, he's the top dim on the House Rules Committee. So, you know, there's at least that little balance of power on rules and administration. Uh, Then we have Veronica Escobar out of Texas. She's also on the Ethics Committee. Uh, There's Nikema Williams out of Georgia, who served on the Select Committee of Modernization of Congress. It was a temporary select committee, so it, it obviously dissolved not too long ago. But a pretty interesting one nonetheless, particularly with the modernization of Congress. She should have some good insight on exactly how to change or create rules proceeding with ousting members from committees. And then finally, Jeffries nominated Derek Kilmer out of Washington who is a former chair of the Select Committee of the Modernization of Congress, same thing as Nakima Williams. For me, this appears like it'll be a long-term precedence that will always favor the party in power in the House of Representatives. So we should probably be prepared every two years to basically see what what metaphorically kind of lines up to be a line of guillotines, right? Just everybody going to the chopping block, right? So this essentially means that any lapse of judgment on the internet for representatives will be met with consequences once the opposing party gains the majority and will have an institutionalized method to oust these members. I think this will become particularly interesting to watch in future Congresses, especially the 119th following the 2024 election. If it's anything like 2020 and depending on who basically gets the majority of power in the House, and it resorts to conspiracism based on the election or campaigns, Buckle in, guys. It's going to be a doozy. Welp, O'Marge is at it again. Last week, the Georgia representative, Marjorie Taylor Greene, posted an incendiary tweet that reads as follows, quote, We need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Everybody I talk to says this. From the sick and disgusting woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America class policies, we are done. End quote. Um, okay, so this is just really weird, It may seem like even further testament that there's a screw loose up there in the beautiful mind of old Marge. But let's kind of assess this rationally, okay? So one, this is this is just straight up seditious rhetoric. Like, you're straight-up calling for another civil war. But let's be kind and entertain this cursed alternate reality scenario for a second. So, let's say we are split by red and blue states, right? Marjorie, I don't know if you know this, but based off of the last two elections, Georgia is a blue state. Your own home state is blue. Biden won that state in 2020, and we currently have two sitting senators for the Democratic Party in office from Georgia. So, Let's say we roll with Georgia being a blue state, right? Let's just go with that reality. Every state has pockets of blue voters and pockets of red voters. Like, there's always up in the countryside, New York, there's basically nothing but red. In uh, the northern, more rural areas of California, there's pockets of red. In Georgia, there's the pockets of blue around the cities. There's a clear disparity here. So would you suggest splitting it based off of counties, which mind you, would be a logistical nightmare, but let's toss that aside. You realize that when you compare counties that voted red and those who voted blue, the blue counties account for 70% of the nation's aggregate share of the GDP? This is according to a Brookings study, by the way. You'd be a poverty-stricken state making pennies. Also, everyone you talk to agrees with this? Girl. 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 Go touch some grass, drink a smoothie, and get offline for a bit. What are you on, 4chan? But let's come back to Earth for a second here, okay? Let's, let's clear the minds, clear the body, clear the soul, get the cleanse, everybody, cleanse. This is clearly not really much of a policy or substance. To me, this reads as a pathetic attempt at building rhetoric and making money. So, let's call back to earlier in February, following the Chinese balloon media frenzy, all that good stuff, right? I covered the balloon, but I didn't cover this. So, Representative Green, following this entire event, perused around the Capitol carrying a white balloon. She then posted videos of this stunt to social media and garnered even more attention. Now, this is the kind of attention that gets her in the spotlight and thus gives her greater opportunities to receive funding from donors. And like we talked about in a previous episode talking about her vice presidential ambitions, she is surprisingly really effective at raising money. And the thing about Republican donors is that they're suckers for these kind of stunts. Not to mention, like I said earlier, she has vice presidential ambitions under Donald Trump in a potential 2024 nomination. This kind of stuff gets you headlines. This kind of stuff gets you in the media. This kind of stuff gets you familiar and integrated within the living room of, like, rural voters that watch Fox News. This is 101 stuff to get interviews. And it just continues to pile more and more attention. But by the same coin, this could serve to be a potentially detrimental approach in terms of electability in our previous segment about committee oustings. Let's say her plan to become vice president just fails, right? Let's just say, hypothetically, if Trump wins the nomination... He chooses someone else, or let's say Trump doesn't even get the nomination at all. You have just put yourself at severe risk of potentially being ousted as, you know, on your committee seat in the case that Democrats win the House back. Like, what's to prevent them from using the task force to go after MTG again, but this time for seditious rhetoric? I don't know, y'all. I I think it's just a short-sighted attempt to try and garner attention, like I mentioned, gain some fundraising money, and just try to get on that short list for Trump's VP. Like, you gotta... Just getting on the knees, getting, getting prepared to do whatever it takes, you know? But all things considered, guys, it's the same old story. Infuriating at worst, and incompetent and bumbling to success at best. Low-key, though, someone needs to round up the psych ward hounds because a patient escaped. Alright, y'all, that's the end of today's show, and as always, thank you so much for listening in. Whether we're talking about landscape altering court decisions, petty partisan squabbles, or any of old Marge's antics, seeing you guys tune in for every episode has been one of the best joys of this podcasting experience. So go ahead and give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, Unless, of course, you're driving right now. Don't do that. Make sure to stay posted for new episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor every week, and I'll see you in the next one. Take it easy.